electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Bad news might finally be bad news again as initial jobless claims tick up for the third week in a row. Yields falling, gold popping, and equities are on the rise on Fed pivot hopes. Does the market finally believe a recession could be on the way? And can stocks really hold up? Regardless, we'll ask. Plus, what's the impact on consumers as household debt climbs yet again? We'll dig into the numbers out a short while ago and talk to one of the senators behind bipartisan legislation aimed at helping Americans deal with rising costs. Plus, Royal Caribbean CEO Jason Liberty reveals how the cruise line is able to maintain its pricing power. And here's a hint. It's not just passing along all costs to customers. First, though, the real news. Dom Chu is back. I, I, he's got to look at these. I feel like I've been out of the office for a couple of weeks now. It's probably because I have pretty close to have been. But you mentioned the recessionary narrative that might be playing out. Kelly, would you believe it if I told you the stock market volatility, volatility index, the VIX, the lowest level since February of 2020. Oh, boy. Nobody, nobody, nobody expects a recession right now is basically what it comes down to. Certainly not the stock market, because like I said, that languishing level of stock market volatility means that we are seeing just a slight bid to the market. It just kind of continues to grind and churn a little bit higher. The Dow Industrial is up about 151 points, one half of 1%. Similar percentage advance here for the S&P 500, up 21 points, 4288 at the highs of the session, up 27 points. At the lows, down six. So it's been a fairly tight trading range, but still, though, hovering towards the upper end of the range. The Nasdaq Composite, 13,215, up 109 points. That's roughly three-quarters of 1%. So the more, I guess, relative advancer, if you will, the Nasdaq and the, that tech-heavier trade. One place to keep a close eye on is that dynamic between small caps, which have been lagging as of late, versus large caps. Look what's happened over the course of the last year. Large caps and small caps try to tend each other, track each other pretty well. And then just about the spring of this year, they diverged. But all of a sudden, that small cap trade is catching up pretty rapidly with the large cap trade as well. So it's a dynamic that some traders are watching, whether or not that small cap trade still has legs and if it can correlate to that large cap trade over the last year. One of the things driving Some of that outperformance today in technology stocks has been artificial intelligence. This on the heels of Adobe announcing that it's going to make its artificial intelligence tool, Firefly, available to large corporate customers. It's already trying to work with some of those customers on how it can use those applications. Adobe, one of the better gainers in the S&P, up about 5%. NVIDIA, Advanced Micro, Palantir, Keynes Design System, some of the other names we talk about in the AI ecosystem, catching a bid on some of that news as well. And then... A quick check on the original meme stock, the OG, if you will, and that's GameStop. The shares are still plunging down about 17%. That's well off the session lows right now. So we did get a few percentage points off those low levels. But GameStop, they fired their CEO. Ryan Cohen is now the new executive chairman, has a new mandate to turn things around there. But, Kelly, that move in GameStop, the volatility is back, but maybe not in a good way for shares of GameStop. Yeah. I'll send things back over. What did you say was the VIX uh, comp, Dom, Feb of 2020? Yeah, I mean, it's February of 2020. Oof, and spooky. we all remember what happened in 
March of 2020, right? Yes, we do. There you go. Dom, thanks. You See you it. soon. New numbers from the Fed show Americans carrying more debt and also putting a historic amount of money into uh, money market funds. Steve Leisman is here with all of the details and some interpretation. Hi, Steve. Yeah, Kelly, I think the interpretation is just for answers about why the economy keeps defying those recession fears. Look no further than the Fed's flow of funds report just out. It showed that household net worth was up by $3 trillion in the first quarter, driven by equity gains. And what you see here is you'll see that there were declines in real estate value down by $600 billion, but more than making up made up by the $2.4 trillion increase in equities, $300 billion pouring into money market funds now at a record $3.3 trillion, debt up by 2.2%. Not bad, maybe not good, maybe right in the middle right there. The equity that homeowners have in their houses, however, declined for the third straight quarter. But it remains, at least for now, just barely above the pre-pandemic level, showing that homeowners have kind of round-tripped their gains through that post-pandemic period here. That number, of course, bears watching. You can have declines in home equity, can be associated with declines in spending. So does that pop this morning in jobless claims. We have to watch it, although it's just one week's worth of data, so you don't want to go too far with it. But it's been strong employment and equity gains that have helped keep the economy from that much forecast recession. We'll need to see if this is the beginning, Kelly, of that long-awaited softening of the job market or if this job market keeps defying 500 basis points of Fed tightening. We will have to see. I don't know whether, which rabbit hole I should go down, Steve, because we're going to dwell on kind of all the macro data in a moment. So maybe I should just ask you one more about household net worth. I thought it was interesting, as you highlighted there, that it sounds like interest income for the first time in a, in a while probably contributed to an increase in net worth. I think that's a piece of it, too. What, what's even more interesting, Kelly, uh, turn it around on we're going to have gains, I suspect, in the second quarter as well. And then we talked yesterday about this issue of those gains in stocks from AI. This is a loosening of financial conditions. So does the Fed here need, need to lean against that uh, down the road in that, hey, you got money in your equity, you got money from your jobs, your raises have not been too bad, even though they haven't kept pace with inflation. So people seem to still have money in their pockets. So the Fed may not be getting the economic cooling that it's hoping for. Yeah, absolutely. Steve, we appreciate it for now. Thank you, our Steve Leesman. Let's break down the report a little further in terms of what's going on with the American household. Net worth overall still ticking up, helped by that rising stock market and some interest income in the first quarter. But at the same time, Americans are also paying record interest rates on credit cards. Car loans are the most expensive in over a decade. And rates on home equity lines of credit are are the highest since March of 2001. Let's talk about this with Ted Rossman. He's senior industry analyst at Bankrate.com. Welcome. It's good to have you here. Thanks for having me. So is this just a matter of, of playing catch up? You know, is it still so, so sort of give it a quarter or two and we'll see the impact these higher rates are having? To me, it's very reflective of the K-shaped economy. Basically, all news is local, not geographically, but rather, where are you on the spectrum? Do you have credit card debt or not? That's a big difference. Those rates... They're at record highs, over 20%. And basically half of cardholders have that debt. That's the kind of thing that's easy to get into, hard to get out of. Car loan debt has been a problem too. As prices have gone up, delinquencies have gone up, especially among subprime borrowers. Yeah, that's probably been the area, would you say, that's been the weakest so far? It has been. And I think it's just because prices have gone up so much that, yes, rates are up too, but the typical new car now costs about $50,000. We're talking... $800 a month payments 
a lot of people can't swing that, especially if they have lesser credit or a lower income. And obviously, as we mentioned, wealth overall was boosted by equity prices, although that relationship is not exactly one for one and it's concentrated on a different part of the population. So, you know, is this a case where, you know, people are going to feel the brunt of this as their excess savings from the pandemic run out, perhaps? I think so. And at lower and middle income levels, that's pretty much gone already. So that's another example of the K-shaped economy. We have to remember, too, only about six in 10 Americans own stocks. Similar number, slightly more, own their homes. Wealth concentration is becoming more and more at upper income levels. And I think that inequality is something to watch when we think about credit card debt burdens, car loan burdens, um, student loans. Those payments are set to resume. That's another $400 a month, a lot of people have to come up with. There's a cumulative effect to all that. Yeah, the timing of that is not ideal because it's going to come right as, you know, we're concerned about the jobless claims with the labor market weakening. So how would you describe, and and to me it's kind of interesting to go back to 08 and say, you know, we we kind of like turned into recession very quickly back then because households were very over leveraged. You know, they had had a lot of people had borrowed on these crazy mortgages to try and get in on on the rising house market. When that turned, they got underwater very quickly. Is it different this time around? Is that going to be more of a cushion or a buffer against a downturn? There are some positives. I mean, yes, there are a lot of negative stats, but there are positives, too. A lot of households are in pretty good shape. We're talking a lot about normalization, as in back to 2019-ish levels of delinquencies. The household debt-to-income ratio is actually still pretty low, Mm -hmm. historically speaking. And I think a lot of that speaks to the strength of the job market. That's the biggest indicator I would watch in terms of people being able to keep up with the bills or not doesn't feel great right now because even though unemployment's low, wage growth has been pretty good, but inflation's higher. So it doesn't feel good, but at least most people are keeping up. Right. And again, that's why, you know, if the next couple of months, if that starts to shake a little bit, is that excess savings still a buffer? Or do you think that's more just for certain maybe higher income cohorts? I think at this point, it's mostly just the higher income folks. Yeah. You know, we have to think, too, about how wage growth has been stronger among lower income households. A lot of that's because the minimum wage has gone up and it's been kind of a, a job seekers market. But especially if that reverses, that's where those 20 percent credit card rates really catch up to you in a hurry. More people are financing daily necessities. And I think that's a problem. More people than you've seen historically? That's right. Yeah, we've definitely seen a noticeable uptick. We see it with buy now, pay later, too. More people financing gas, groceries, everyday stuff. That's really pricey debt. Sixty percent of credit card debtors have had it for at least a year. That's up 10 percentage points in the past year. That's something to watch, too. All right. Ted, thanks so much for running us through it all. We appreciate it. Thank you. Ted Rossman. Speaking of costly credit cards, the fees charged by card networks are putting an increasing strain on businesses. It's now prompted lawmakers to reintroduce legislation to curb fees charged by Visa and MasterCard. The Credit Card Competition Act would increase competition and try to bring down costs for Main Street. Joining me now is Democratic Senator Peter Welch of Vermont. He's a co-sponsor of this bipartisan bicameral bill. Senator, welcome. Thank you. What exactly does this bill aim to do? Uh, to really save money for the merchants who are getting, in my view, ripped off by the Visa MasterCard duopoly, where a lot of folks don't know this, but when you use your credit card, it's convenient for you, but the merchant has to pay oftentimes 2 to 3%. In the smaller the merchant, the higher that fee is. So if you spend $100, the merchant only gets 97 And these fees are one of the biggest expenses, and it's particularly rough on our small businesses uh, in in all of our communities. 
And the United States <clears throat> is the only country where we uh, have no regulation on how much those fees can be. And Visa MasterCard charge in the United States about 10 times the fee that is charged in the European Union and other countries around the world. Brutal cost on our small businesses and no bargaining power. What yeah. our bill would do is introduce competition. It would say that there has to be at least two processing terminals the Visa MasterCard that you might use when you go, but another one so that the merchant would be able to make a choice and pick which processing uh, device they use if they can get a better bargain uh, from another uh, competitor. No competition. We want to introduce competition right. into this arrangement. Although the bagel shop or the, the hair salon might say, okay, that's now two card processing things and the fees aren't that different and this is just a, a big headache and it's not saving. I mean, all of us consumers, Senator, have certainly noticed when we're at these establishments, the surcharge for those card networks is being passed along. You know, we're all getting 3% extra every time you use a credit card. But the reason I personally haven't used a debit card and I continue to pay that 3% is because of the fraud protection. You know, it's so rampant now that I'd rather have a credit card where there's at least a, a chance that I can go to that provider and say, hey, you know, there's fraud. You've got to shut this down. We've got to work on this bill. A debit card, the money's gone. Yeah, no, you're right. But what we're doing in the fraud protection is a good thing. But the fraud protection has been enhanced enormously, especially with the chip cards. And the other device, the routing device, would be required to have the same benefit of fraud protection that you enjoy now under the current arrangement. Bottom line here is most of us consumers, it doesn't affect us because if we pay our credit card, well, there's no cost to us. But that merchant, our small town merchant, uh, that local grocery store, the coffee shop, the bagel shop, that expense, 2 to 3 percent, that is oftentimes their second highest business expense. Absolutely. And it's putting the squeeze on them. And you know what? Inflation is good for Visa MasterCard. You know, it's not as though they have additional expenses when you spend $100 or $10. It's just the same processing, electronic. So bottom line here is why should our merchants pay absolutely the highest credit card transaction fees in the world in about 10 times higher than Europe. That's not fair. It's not right. And it is a function of there being absolutely no competition in the area. Capitalism, you know, we're, we're supposed to have competition. And that's the heart of what yeah. our bipartisan bill does. It now, restores competition. I, ironically, crypto wanted to fix this. <laughs> One of the things that, uh, you know, DeFi or whatever you want to call it, wanted to do was to kind of supplant these expensive networks. But obviously that, that effort didn't go very far. So part of the reason there's only a few incumbents is, is that it seems to have kind of high barriers to entry. And even your approach of acquiring two different operators, would, wouldn't that only enshrine the fact that there's only four right now? I mean, if you required them to have six processors, I guess there'd have to be new players. But of course, that would be impractical. Well, you got, you know, you, you have a point, but there's literally no competition now. So if you're that bagel shop and you have an opportunity to get a transaction network that's going to be 1% instead of 2 or 3%, you're going to take it. Now you have no option. It's totally take it or leave it from Visa MasterCard. And by the way, Visa MasterCard, they operate and make a lot of money in Europe. But in Europe, the uh, amount that they can charge is capped at three-tenths of a penny. So uh, they do fine there, and the merchants don't get ripped off. 
So bottom line, competition. And you know what? We have to be supportive of our small businesses in particular because they add so much to the vitality of all of our communities, especially in rural America. But folks in those small retail businesses, they work really hard, they're really cost conscious, and they face competition. Sure. They have to deal with the reality of market competition. Visa, MasterCard can just impose whatever terms they want. Senator, just because I have a sitting senator here and I have to ask you about this news item, I'm simply curious. They've denied it, but the Wall Street Journal says that China and Cuba have reached a secret agreement for China to establish an electronic eavesdropping facility on that island. Again, they're denied. If this is the case, how much of a concern would this be for you? How can we not all have, you know, kind of chills and recollection of the whole Cold War era all over again? Well, I'm concerned about it, uh, and, and, and I don't know about it. I just read that report that you referred to. Uh, but the reality is that everybody has listening devices everywhere. So we got to be on alert, but we can take preparations to protect ourselves. But what I'm alarmed at is uh, the uh, Chinese presence in Cuba that you just mentioned, and of course they're reaching into Latin America. So part of our effort to protect us against Chinese encroachment has to include uh, us outreaching and having our own re positive relationships with Latin America. Hmm. That's an interesting take. Senator, thanks for your time and for uh, fielding the questions. We appreciate it. Thank you. Senator Peter Welch of Vermont joining me today. Coming up, recessionomics. If all the signs of a slowdown are here, why are stocks and many pundits still shrugging it off? We'll look at all the leading indicators and let you decide. Plus, hundreds of flights are delayed and millions of people are under air quality alerts as smoke from wildfires in Canada spreads. We'll look at the impact it's having on travel and the implications for insurance. As we head to break, here's a glance at the markets. Dow's up half a percent, similar for the S&P to 42.89 today. The Nasdaq up nearly 1% while the small caps are under pressure and the 10-year yield is back to 373. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Some big news on the economy this morning. New jobless claims, a leading gauge for the labor market, jumped to their highest level since late 2021. That worrisome rise sent yields tumbling, and it shows that the economy 
is so far following a pretty textbook description of a looming downturn, starting with housing, which peaked in late 2020. Both new and existing home sales have fallen about 35% from their peak activity levels that year. Then manufacturers' new orders topped out in June of last year, and industrial production peaked about three months later. Around that same time, a key financial market signal of recession also popped up. Tens and twos consistently inverted nearly a year ago in July of 2022, while the three-year three-month versus the 10-year, arguably the one that people watch more closely, followed suit around October. This often signals a recession will start within a year or so. Markets are widely expecting the Fed to pause at its meeting next week and then continue hiking rates. The latest reading showing a 63% chance of a hike in July. Let's ask my next guest how they are positioning. With me now is David Balin, City Global Wealth Management CIO, and David Bonson, Chief Investment Officer at the Bonson Group. David B. and David B., welcome to you both. And David Bonson, I'll start with you because... I sense you might take issue with my bearishness, perhaps. Uh, what, what would your view be at this point on the market? You know, Kelly, as I was listening to you describe some of those factors, I was thinking that some of them I don't view as negatives. I mean, housing correcting to a place of affordability and reasonability, I think, is a positive thing for the economy, not negative. But I certainly agree that oftentimes, though not always, the inverted yield curve indicates it doesn't cause a recession. It indicates a recession to come. But there are plenty of false alarms that have happened throughout history. I personally believe we have a greater chance than not of going into a recession. But I still strongly suspect it ends up being a mild one, much like the 2002 recession, where much of the job losses were limited to one sector and even one part of the country, that being technology, which was way overhired and, frankly, overpaid. So I wouldn't say that I'm bullish on the economy, but I do think we all have to have a little bit of humility here that the jobs data and a lot and even the way credit spreads have responded to this brutal tightening from the Fed, it hasn't been that bad yet. And I am open to a number of different outcomes that could come from here. Yeah, and to your point, that 2001 recession was only about six months long, and it wasn't very right. deep at all. And, of course, it had 9-11 towards uh, the end of that. David Balin, I'm curious what you think. The, the narrative forming seems to be, well, even if we're going into a recession, maybe the market's already priced it in. Is that a, a, a historical possibility, a rational one right now? What do you think? Well, the market is priced in, you know, the market has been signaled that there's going to be a recession now for the better part of a year, right? And I think we have to look at the degree to which, you know, companies have actually taken action, right? They've reduced their CapEx. They've actually reduced, you know, as many costs as they can. They postpone certain investments. So they're you know, getting ready for one. But I think what we're missing in all of this is that this is a rolling recession. You've already hit upon areas of the economy where the recession is well underway. And when a recession is well underway, inventories are coming down, whether it be new houses, whether it be manufactured goods, whether it be the sort of supply of finished goods, all of those are already coming down. And inflation is already coming down. So the Fed's actions have actually had beneficial impact on inflation. So what investors need to do is to think about where they want to position portfolios in 2024. And in our mid-year outlook, which we launched today, we found several areas, right, you know, small and medium-sized stocks, non-U.S. shares. And perhaps the most important thing that investors can do is to, is to move from cash, which is yielding, you know, 5% if you buy a T-bill, and to start buying, you know, intermediate debt, right, to be able to maintain, right, higher rates for longer, whether it be in investment grade or preferred stocks. And why they should do that is that if inflation does come down in 2024, let's say from, you know, 4% to 2.5%, 
they can capture and maintain a real yield of 2 to 3% relatively easy, which mm -hmm. is not something that is typically available to the typical investor. So there's a lot for people to do, and a lot of people are frozen right now in, you know, look at the markets and they're afraid of the recession when they're not looking at the opportunity to really build better portfolios for the next six to 12 months. The credit area is also something we've heard from David Zervos and others uh, kind of saying this is a place to look right now. David Bonds, so again, just to reiterate David Balin's picks, he said some small and mid-sized U.S. firms, so emerging markets becoming undervalued. David Bonds, and tactically, where are you looking? Well, we're kind of permanent evergreen dividend growth investors, and yet within dividend growth, we did super well with consumer staples as that pricing power dynamic played out as it normally does. Uh, but right now, I believe that financials got way oversold. Some of the asset managers, some of the more rate-sensitive alternative managers, uh, we think there's great opportunity. And even with, much like post-Dodd-Frank, a lot of the sort of reorganization of our uh, capital markets led to certain opportunities. Right now, I think a lot less lending will get done by some of the regional banks, and a lot more lending will get done in private credit. So we've been looking at Blackstone and Apollo, Blue Owl. Uh, Blackstone Apollo, we've owned a long time, Kelly, but Blue mm -hmm. Owl is a position we've been adding this week for that very reason. We think there's a great opportunity in private credit when some are looking at it as overdone. We think it represents a paradigm shift in how credit is extended in our country. That's exactly what uh, Liz Burton from uh, Goldman was telling us the other day. They're looking yeah. to that opportunity as well. Very interesting. All right, that's why we do it. That's what makes the market. Gentlemen, thank you both very much for your time today. Appreciate it. David Balin and David Bonson. One engine of job growth that's still going strong, small businesses. They've made up the lion's share of excess hiring since the pandemic, and they're still struggling to find enough workers to fill their job openings. Kate Rogers here with the details. Hi, Kate. Hey, Kelly. Well, aside from lending troubles, inflation and supply chain issues, the lack of workers available to fill jobs is keeping small business owners up at night. The NFIB says 44 percent of owners in May had openings that they couldn't fill. That's near a record high. The pain is most acute in sectors like construction. Take a listen to Brendan McCluskey of Trident Builders. We're on the precipice of having some real opportunities for growth. And am I going to be able to staff it? You know, I'm trying to get to that next level that knows like the next weight class and that, which would allow us to stabilize our revenues, grow, invest in people, invest in systems, frankly, just make more money. Another sector where it's being felt is retail. Owners like Allison Chuch say that they're operating short staffed and workers have shifted their expectations post pandemic. It's just been hard to kind of balance the expectations of the team and the needs of the business and the needs on both sides. And then also the expectations of the customers, because, you know, having to close early because we don't have enough people. Now, another note, some owners are slowly now pulling back on hiring. Job creation plans have slowed over the last year as optimism wanes and owners await this potential recession, Kelly. So a few different issues there for Main Street. Yeah, and I noticed construction. Obviously, there's been a big construction boom uh, going on, partly mm -hmm. because of the CHIPS Act, Inflation Reduction Act. But immigration, is that usually one way people fill these, uh, fill these holes? Yeah, and certain sectors, Kelly, are pushing for more comprehensive immigration reform. So the National Restaurant Association, for example, says that that's a huge part of filling roles in that part of the economy. And right now there's one application for uh, every two open jobs. So one applicant there with the expectation that another half a million jobs will be added by the year's end. Eighty percent of restaurant operators have open positions right now. So that group is pushing Congress to pass what's called the Essential Workers for Economic Advancement Act. And that would create a pathway to fill these market 
visa-driven positions with non-immigrant visas for temporary positions. So they say that's just one piece of the puzzle. But the restaurant industry really could use that reform to help fill those open roles. Very interesting. Kate, thank you. Our Kate Rogers reporting. Still ahead, smoke blanketing the Northeast, disrupting hundreds of flights across the country, according to FlightAware's Misery Map. More than 1,700 delays and nearly 1,000 cancellations so far. We'll look at who's most affected and the fallout on insurers. The Exchange is back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Major East Coast cities from Boston to Washington, there's New York City, impacted by the smoke coming from those Canadian wildfires. 120 million people are currently under air quality warnings. The haze is also delaying thousands of flights thanks to FAA pauses. For more on the fallout, let's bring in Leslie Joseph. She's the airline reporter for CNBC.com. She's here with me, along with Michael Boyd, president and CEO of the Boyd Group International. Welcome to both of you. And Leslie, just put this in context for us of other kind of I mean, I don't know what the comps are, you know, natural disasters and, and the like. How big a deal has the stoppage been? So it hasn't been as big a deal as, let's say, a hurricane or hmm. something where you're seeing or even a blizzard. I mean, we all remember Christmas 2022 um, where we saw tens of thousands of uh, delays of cancellations and things like that. It is not that bad, um, but it is very unusual for the New York area because we don't normally deal hmm. with forest fires. Uh, like this. So it is a, a rather unusual thing to, to Not see. Not to mention a lot of people trying to get in might be getting in for events that no longer exist. So I don't know, maybe they're happy to turn around and go somewhere else at this point. Yeah, I mean, there are other parts of the country that are also having weather issues. There was a ground stop at Fort Lauderdale earlier. Um, so there are things, I mean, this is the late spring, so there it, there is weather cropping up. But we are talking about, you know, close to 2,000 delays across the country and dozens, if not hundreds, at LaGuardia, uh, Newark, and then all the way down to Charlotte that we're wow. seeing some of the, the issues. Michael Boyd, what, what's your take on this? Such an unusual event. And I don't, I don't know if I speak for everybody here, but it felt like it came out of nowhere. Well, it did. I mean, somebody, somebody burning something in Alberta hits midtown Manhattan. <laughs> I mean, that's just weird. But the fact of the matter, it's just like Leslie said, this is like a weather event. We have to deal with it. And we have an air traffic control system. It's a little bit or a little bit more behind the curve than it should be. So in the abundance of caution, we'll have it. But if you have 40 flights delayed out of LaGuardia, let's say, that affects the entire industry because that Southwest airplane can't get out to go to Lauderdale, then can't get out later to go to New Orleans. It, it snowballs. So uh, what we're getting, this gift from Canada is affecting all of us. Well, and, you know, listen, not to get on a tangent, although maybe I'm going to on air traffic control, uh, but this is something, Michael Boyd, that you actually have really been working on consulting with airlines and trying to modernize. And, I mean, when's it going to happen? Well, we, we did hearings in Congress in 1994. Nothing has happened since then. I mean, and again, in all fairness, it's a bureaucracy. The people inside the FAA, I guarantee you, are good people. They're trying to work through this. But uh, again, there's been no leadership and there's no been no vision. And we've got to blast it out of that because it's costing our nation a lot of money and a lot of economic impact. It's, it's, it's a critical situation that's not being addressed properly. Is it? And we know that, you know, there were meetings, uh, you know, of industry leaders, you know, months ago to try to kind of uh, solve the issue. There have been some some close mishaps uh, with jets 
and, and the airports. I mean, what, how much better would the experience be for all of us, whether it's from a weather dis disruption or something else, if we were able to modernize things as they ought to be right now? It would be severely better, to be very blunt. But let's keep in mind, too, airlines do bear some of the, the brunt here. I mean, it's their production line that's being affected by air traffic control, and some of their production line needs to be, be fixed as well. But overall, it's a major, probably tens of billions of dollar hit to the U.S. economy because we don't have a freely operating air, tra air transportation system. Airlines do have some of that responsibility, by the way. Yeah. Leslie, we're hoping this clears up in the next couple of days, although people start telling me it could be weeks before the air is really clear. And a lot of people are canceling events to be super safe because they don't want liability if, if something goes wrong. We've already heard that emergency room visits in New York spiked yesterday. So what are the implications if this starts to carry on into Saturday, Sunday, and then even into next weekend? Yeah, unfortunately, the thing with airline delays is they tend to cascade. So uh, like Mike was, was saying, you know, that Southwest plane can't get onto Florida. It can't move on to its next, next destination. And it just tends to snowball, really. So that is an issue. I mean, we saw with sporting events, that's being canceled. Those are big uh, draws to New York City, Broadway shows and things like that. And, and we just don't know. And with aviation, unfortunately, it's always that thing you're not expecting. Um, so there are a lot of curveballs and, and airlines are kind of dealing with it day by day, hour by hour, really. Yeah, absolutely. I guess last question, Mike. Maybe this is a dumb question or maybe it's just changed in the wake of COVID. But if I'm on a flight, am I going to be breathing in smoke or are, do they now all have these like air filtration systems that would take care of that? Oh, no, it, it, is, it is definitely like a, an operating room today, except there's no sick people other than you. So, you know, it'd be safer on the airplane than sitting in the, the lounge at LaGuardia. Yeah, well said. Michael Boyd, Leslie Josephs, thank you so much. We thank appreciate you. it. And as the East Coast deals with the haze from those Canada wildfires, the West Coast is prepping for its wildfire season. They're like, we do this all the time. State Farm and Allstate have already stopped writing new policies in California because of wildfires causing construction risk uh, and that rebuilding is more expensive than, other, uh, than ever. Others could follow suit. Now let's get to Contessa Brewer with more on that story for us. Contessa? Yeah, there's a lot of factors that go into that, Kelly, but basically insurers and reinsurers are trying to reduce their exposure to wildfires. We did see State Farm and Allstate announce no new policies in California where eight of the 10 costliest wildfires across the globe happened. Chubb and AIG already largely left the state. Industry experts predict more will leave unless the state regulators grapple with a market where insurers are not permitted to charge enough to cover their losses. Insurers are bracing now for wildfire, as you said, um, but the government scientists have now confirmed that El Nino is back. That typically results in hotter, drier weather across the northern U.S. and Canada. And look at this. The forecast from the National Interagency Fire says that they're seeing elevated potential in the Pacific Northwest. Look around Washington State there for June and July, around the Great Lakes, upstate New York and northern New England. These are all places that we are not accustomed to talking about massive threats of wildfires. And then you'll see in the green, there's a lower potential for wildfires in California, at least in June and July, because all of that lush greenery from record-setting rainfall in the spring. But watch out for August and September. If all of that foliage dries, it just ends up as fuel for wildfires. I did want to mention, Kelly, that we see these regulatory hurdles that are present in California. They're definitely present in, in Florida, Washington State, Louisiana, Texas, New York, New Jersey. And insurance brokerage A.J. Gallagher told me that soaring inflation, those reinsurance rates and climate risk all combine into a massive hurdle in all 50 states. 
As far as the smoke goes, already we could see travel insurance kicking in for the flight dis disruptions that Leslie was talking about. And Veris tells me that smoke damage claims are already coming in. Wow. Contessa, thank you very mm -hmm. much, Contessa Brewer. We've got a news alert on that reported U.S. deal with Iran that sent oil prices lower earlier on. Pippa Stevens with the story. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Kelly. Well, Reuters reporting just now that the White House says that that report that Iran and the United States were nearing a deal on Russian, on Iranian, sorry, Iranian uranium enrichment was false. That comes after a report in the Middle East Eye earlier today said that the two nations were nearing a deal which did send WTI briefly down more than 3 percent, but it had already started to bounce back from the lows on some traders, uh, you know, weighing potentially that this might be uh, not really going to happen. So it had already recovered. Uh, but once again, the White House saying that that report is false. Kelly. Thank you very much. And we see oil about having its declines. Pippa Stevens, thank you very much. Coming up, shares of Salesforce are higher today after Mark Benioff announced a C-suite shakeup and hinted at a succession plan a little more than a week after they reported their slowest revenue growth in more than a decade. We'll get a preview of the Salesforce shareholder meeting kicking off in just about 15 minutes. It's coming up next on The Exchange. Welcome back. Tech companies are trying to lure employees back into the office, but there seem to be two different approaches emerging. And that's the focus of today's Tech Check with Dear Jobosa. Ooh, good tease. What are they, Dee? <laughs> okay, well, you know, you could argue that there's actually three, but the two, carrot and stick, right? So you saw Google last year try and entice people back with a Lizzo concert, more free stuff. But now we're seeing the stick come out. Google, for example, with performance reviews. You see this at other big tech companies too, Apple, Amazon, that are trying to get workers to go back to the office under this hybrid, um, hybrid arrangement. The third one, Kelly, <laughs> is kind of interesting. Maybe let's call it altruism, right? This is what Salesforce is doing. They're basically saying that, hey, if you come in between these dates, we'll offer $10 to a charity of your choice. Um, so I don't know if it falls in any of those categories. But the point is that big tech companies are finding a whole host of reasons to try and get workers back into the office after, really, over the last few years, touting the benefits of remote work. You know, so many observations. I, you know, movie, uh, the other... Uh, uh, I think a lot of it just comes down to people not wanting to commute. Uh, but I don't know if there's a, a pivot there, because Salesforce is one of the companies, Georgia, that really trumpeted this whole idea of we don't have an office anymore, employees can do what they want. And then they seem to be kind of very quickly reversing as part of this broader crackdown on expenses and, and better operating. And they have their, uh, their yeah. investor meeting coming up here in about 10 minutes' time. That's right. The shareholder meeting happening today with some reported shakeups at the top. There's still this question of a Mark Benioff succession. Is there going to be able to have someone to come in after he lost his co-CEO earlier? And remember, there's still activist investors that are interested in this company. And there was that presentation that we saw, I think, at the end of last year that showed that Salesforce, in terms of a number of profitability metrics, operational metrics, hasn't necessarily been able to keep up with others in the space. It's done a pretty good job this year, though, despite that activist pressure. It's up, what, nearly 60 percent year to date. And also, you know, can play into the whole AI shift. Of course, Benioff is going to be talking about Einstein and other things that they're doing. Um, but it'll be an interesting shareholder meeting, especially return to office, all these other topics on the table. Yeah. And I think they are seen, would you say they're a bit, of, I mean, a bit of a bellwether? 
Yeah, especially, that's the other part I didn't mention, so thank you, enterprise spending, right? That is still a big question. Everyone is so excited about artificial intelligence and generative AI, but there is this question in the background, how quickly is enterprise spend recovering? And that affects Salesforce, but also in AWS, right, at Amazon and the other hyperscalers, their cloud units. How quickly is that or isn't that picking up? Right, and that's a question we've been trying to ask pretty much anyone yeah. who comes through and, and is on the B2B side because there have been some conflicting reports. You know, some make it, you Absolutely. know, I, I think even back to Sentinel-1 last week, you know, down whatever it was, 30, 40% in a day, and they cited difficult macro conditions implying that businesses are pulling back on some cyber spend. Well, okay, but their competitors aren't necessarily, and even the analysts following it were sort of saying, we're not sure that that's entirely the story here. Absolutely. That is such a good point, Kelly. It is a big debate in the tech world right now that kind of gets pushed to the background because of all the talk about AI. The biggest question, you know, Salesforce is a bellwether, but you could argue AWS at Amazon, Amazon's cloud unit is the biggest bellwether, and you constantly hear people asking, has it bottomed? That's the key question here. All right, Deirdre, thank you very much. Our Deirdre Bosa reporting. Coming up, $65 trillion. Trillion. That's how much AARP estimates the contribution of the 50-plus population to global GDP will be by 2030. It feels like the entire GDP. That senior spending power is having a big impact on one company already, according to its CEO. We've got those details next. And throughout June, CNBC is celebrating Pride Month by sharing stories of corporate leaders. Here is Grindr CEO George Arison. We know there's so much attack and hate at the community today happening from um, lots of places. In that context, Grindr going public in November, uh, I think speaks uh, uh, to a lot of very positive things. The extent to which we were celebrated uh, on Wall Street when we went public and, and the amount of support we've gotten since being public, I think is, is really fantastic. Uh, here's a company built by gay people for gay people um, where you know the CEO is gay, uh, married, and with children. Grindr's board has uh, nine members in total, six of whom are gay, who are lesbian, who are trans, and to have a board like that, I think is a really powerful testament. Welcome back. Shoys, shoys. Shares of Royal Caribbean are up 85% so far this year as people continue to spend on travel and experiences. But there's one segment of the population that has proven to be key to Royal's current strength. Seema Modi spoke to CEO Jason Liberty about that, and she joins me now, Seema. Well, Kelly, as you know, the millennials no doubt led the post-pandemic recovery in travel, but Royal Caribbean says it's the baby boomer customer now that is increasingly booking trips and opting for more expensive cruises as well. On the luxury side, it's more the baby boomers uh, coming in. Also, Gen Xers looking to uh, to build experiences and go on some more of the expedition uh, type of cruising. And then the millennials um, combined with the Gen Xers are really feeding multi-generational travel. But also that baby boomer is bringing in um, more of that multi-generational travel as the grandparents are looking to travel with their kids and their grandkids. Liberty adds that the older demographic is highly valuable. They pay up for the type of cruise and they tend to bring other family members along with them. He says that's giving Royal Caribbean pricing power in this tough environment. Even with cruise fares rising, Royal says its offerings are still 40% cheaper than hotel vacations. That's up from 2019 levels. And one of the reasons investors continue to bid up cruise stocks and just shows you how investors are also becoming more selective in the travel world. Royal up 26% in the last three months versus Marriott 
Marriott up 2%. Royal also is increasingly opting for biofuels as a way to reduce exposure to the volatility in oil prices. Investors now going to pivot their focus, Kelly, to Carnival, which is set to report earnings this month. Hmm. I'm surprised the hotels haven't done better. Is it is Marriott indicative of, of kind of all of them being? And then there were some, uh, like an, an underweight for, was it booking and maybe one of the other travel sites this morning? Is there something going on there? I think it really shows you that investors are becoming more discerning when they're looking to invest in the travel space. The airlines have certainly done well, but they always have that oil risk. And now with pricing continuing to rise, you got to wonder, are they pricing out certain customers? With the cruise lines, they were the last ones to really benefit from this post-pandemic surge. So now there's this huge run-up in bookings. The question is, can that last? For the hotels, they're starting to see the average daily rate come down in the past couple of months. So a little bit softer pricing could be part of the story. Starting to see it come down. That is interesting and something to watch. And yet at the same time, we're still hearing about labor shortages uh, across the industry. We are. And, you know, when I think back to the conversation I had with Jason Liberty last night, uh, he really points out that travel agents, which were eliminated during the pandemic, are now coming back. And one of the reasons Hmm. is because they're seeing so much demand from that older demographic that prefers to work with a travel agent when they're booking a cruise. Let me tell you, booking a flight, very different from booking a cruise where there are so many different options, Kelly, from the type of cabin, do you get that drink package, do you not? Um, So that's where that customer tends to prefer to work with an experienced travel agent that also tends to be older than uh, millennials. So 70 is a new 60 is what what travel agent Apparently 70 is the new 17, the way people are spending and living it up and all the rest. We've heard it from the restaurants and other groups. Yes. um, uh, Fascinating. Seema, thank you very much, our Seema Modi. That does it for us today on The Exchange. Uh, President Biden, by the way, just releasing a statement on the more than 400 active wildfires in Canada, saying he's spoken to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and has offered any additional resources Canada needs to rapidly accelerate the effort to put out those fires. Biden also spoke with his Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, about proactively managing air traffic during these periods. The statement also says Americans can now find detailed recommendations on protecting themselves from the effects of smoke at CD. Power Lunch is up next. A whole lot more. Tyler's getting ready. I will talk some technical support on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.